In the world of Juan Carlos Guzman Betancourt, I've come to realize that there are rules. Never enter a hotel room if there's someone inside. Never hand over your identification. Always carry Louis Vuitton luggage. And never say too much. It can get you into trouble. The day I broke one of these rules, it was a bad day for me. From What's the Story Sounds, this is Con Juan. Episode 5, Crossing the Line. I left the last episode and Austria despondent. Christian and I had come so close to Juan Carlos and received a letter from him. But now we felt as far away as ever. I mean, he would have ended up in, you know, I don't, not sure you could get anywhere from here without going first through Vienna. It's just going to be a case of, you know, finding out whether he's, you know, has he been in Vienna? Has he been into any of the hotels there since his release? Um, well, you know, where has he gone? It's impossible to, impossible to say. As a free man, Christian was pretty sure Juan would soon be back to his old tricks. But Christian also thought that he might fancy taking it easy for a while, just to enjoy life. It might be that he thinks to himself, I, I, I keep getting arrested and extradited to other countries, maybe I'll go and lay low for a bit. He might, he might want to have a bit of a break. Where would he lay low, do you think? Well, if I was him, somewhere sunny. <laughs> um, you'd lay low somewhere where you were you were comfortable. You know, where you wouldn't be, where you wouldn't be looking over your shoulder, uh, where you wouldn't be working, as in committing crimes. Um, I mean, really, that could be that could be anywhere for him, but, but more than likely a like a, a Spanish. Spanish-speaking country, probably, because that's his mother tongue. Christian was keeping his ear to the ground for any more tip-offs, and I was trying to learn anything I could about Juan's methods. I knew he'd travelled several times around the world. He was a prison escapee from the UK, an illegal alien in the US, and everywhere he went, he travelled with false passports. As I was finding out, Juan had admitted to having lots of passports. In the only interview he's done, 10 years ago now, with a Colombian journalist called Andre Pachon, Juan admitted that he had enough documents to go pretty much anywhere he wanted. I have about 90 different identities. All the names are there. Then, when I want to need to use one of these names, I take the passport and say, well, this is going to be me. I always travel with one or two, depending on the area where I'm going to move. I have pretended to be from South Africa, Asia, Australia, the United 90 States, passports. Argentina, Mexico. I didn't believe it when I heard this. But when Christian arrested him in London, he was in possession of a Russian passport. Inside it was his face, but with a Russian name. It appeared to be a real, official passport. Different identities are the tools of his trade. He's gone by the name David Zapata Vives, 
uh, Guillermo Rosales for just a couple. And they're just the names I've told you about. There's many, many more. And Juan claimed in that interview that all of his passports are real. But how does he get them? Well, from what I can find out, Juan has never spoken about how he does it. And no police force anywhere has figured it out either. In the modern age of biometrics, fingerprints and face recognition, he's beating a system that you're not meant to beat. However he's done it, Juan Carlos is rarely Juan Carlos whenever he travels. But it's not enough just to have a passport. When you're going through airport security, you need to be the person on your ID. You need to embody them, be convincing enough to be let through. If you put me with a Russian, I can speak perfectly in Russian. Or with an American or an English, I can also change the accents perfectly. I spoke to Christian about the pressures and challenges of living with a false name. After the Juan Carlos case was complete, Christian got a role as an undercover officer, taking on a fake identity to infiltrate criminal gangs and gather evidence. And he told me that he often thought about Juan, how he chopped and changed identity, and wondered how he coped with the stress of it. We were always on the move. I mean, I, I travel a lot for my current job and I know how stressful just traveling a lot is. Um, imagine compounding that with the pressure of you know, law enforcement agencies who are potentially after you and the fact that you might get caught by hotel security or, you know, all of those factors must, uh, must weigh heavy on your shoulders. He's still going to be suffering some sort of, you know, mental, psychological, emotional pressure to constantly, you know, it's, it's wound up with the constant movement and going to different places and speaking different languages. That, that's an incredible amount of, it takes an incredible amount of sort of psychological fortitude to be able to, I mean, it's almost like you, you're, you're, you're a constant or, or permanent fugitive. I found out that Juan developed these skills in a rather unconventional way by listening to music from the countries that he was planning to visit. I do not listen to music in Spanish. I listen to music in different languages. I learned English in three months and French also about three months. I think it is very important for me to perfect the languages. It is very unprofessional for me to arrive and speak in a way that isn't correct. Juan may have perfected his trade and become an expert in con artistry. But that didn't mean that Juan Carlos was invincible. The next person I spoke to made me realise that even the best can make mistakes. I found paperwork that shows throughout 2009 Juan Carlos was flying back and forth between Canada and Barcelona in Spain, presumably on one of his 90 passports. He'd spend his time eating, drinking, enjoying himself. I've got receipts from some of those trips that he went on. But what those receipts show me is that every single time, Juan was alone. Juan Carlos seems to spend most of his time alone, at least while he's in transit. And it's something I think about a lot. How does a man constantly on the run, looking over his shoulder, build friendships, relationships? Nobody goes through life in pure isolation. He told us in the last episode that he felt lonely. And we also heard about Alfredo, a boyfriend. But 
by this stage, that relationship was over. And I can't find any other mention of a significant man in Juan's life. So, once again flying solo, Juan returned to Canada, this time to Quebec, right by the border with the United States. Peter Costas is a retired Border Patrol agent who lived and worked at a crossing at a place called Derby Line. Derby Line is a, is a small town, a couple thousand people maybe at the most, and it sits right on the border of uh, Vermont and Quebec. When Peter says it sits on the border, he isn't joking. The Haskell Free Library literally sits on the borderline, half in Canada, half in the USA. A line drawn onto the marble floor marks the spot where you leave one country and enter another. There's an opera house, a gas station, a handful of stores. It's a village, essentially. So when there's a newcomer in town, they're not hard to spot. For Peter and the other Border Patrol agents, their job was to keep a constant check along that international border between Canada and the USA. If you're asking me what a typical Border Patrol agent did or does uh, in Derby Line, it's simply to monitor the line. It's to, uh, to make sure that nothing or no one enters the United States without being inspected by uh, a Customs and Border Protection officer. It is very common for people to attempt to cross the border illegally there. So it was. On September the 19th of 2009, Juan Carlos approached the border looked left, and then looked right, and then strode right across into the United States. Crossing the border is the easy part. Getting away from the border, that's the hard part. After having crossed the border illegally, directly in front of the Haskell Opera House, Juan Carlos walked up and down the street, looking for a way out of his immediate area. He'd crossed the border, and now he needed to get as far away from it as possible. Though... Somewhat predictably, Juan Carlos remembers it differently. I was on the borderline between Canada and the United States. Between the border, there is a gas station that is the only one that exists in the area. I was only there for gas. After having crossed the border illegally, Juan Carlos Guzman Betancourt walked up and down the street looking for a way out of his immediate area. He had crossed the border, he was looking for a taxi. He was very vulnerable at that point. He knew that the place was crawling with cops, it was crawling with Border Patrol agents. He couldn't find a taxi, couldn't find a way out of there easily, so he walked to the convenience store gas station directly across the street from the port of entry, and he went inside and he spoke with the clerk on duty and asked for a phone book. At that time, an immigration agent entered the gas station. He wasn't in uniform, so I didn't know. Dressed in civilian clothes, the border agent looked just like any other customer. And so Juan Carlos didn't give him a second thought. Juan Carlos gave her a, uh, a fabricated story about how his car broke down and he needed to get back to his car and he needed a taxi and... Uh, how he part of the story included that he was a, a graduate student at Stansted College, which he no doubt walked right past. Juan Carlos was breaking one of his own rules, talking too much. 
and that off-duty Border Patrol agent who had walked in was listening to every word. Stansted College is actually for, it's a private school. It is not a place of higher learning, but he saw the word college and, and got the wrong idea. As this was happening, our officer was, stand, was off duty and standing behind him in line, and he overheard this. And he knew enough about Stansted College to know that the story was nonsense. So he got on the cell phone, he got on his cell phone, and he called across the street to the port of entry, and he asked them, hey, did you, did you admit this guy? Did you inspect this guy? And they said, no. He said, we'll call Border Patrol. Send him over here. Stood in that gas station, Juan Carlos was questioned. Could he explain why he was in the United States? How had he got there? He asks me my name. I told him. He began to tell me, you know, you can't be on this side of the border. I said, no, I didn't know. I didn't know that you couldn't come here. I didn't try to enter the United States illegally. I was just here for the gas station. The guy refused to believe me. So they took him into custody and they brought him to the station and they fingerprinted him. And at that point, the game was over. He was then identified as Juan Carlos Guzman Betancourt. That's when they called me. It didn't take long for Peter to learn about Juan's past and all about his former crimes. He had been formally removed from the United States several times before and uh, entering the U.S. again without applying for admission or ad applying for a waiver from the Director of Homeland Security or the Attorney General of the United States constitutes a felony punishable by up to 20 years in prison. It's not every day that in a sleepy village like Derby Line, Vermont, you are going to encounter a internationally renowned con man, jewel thief, uh, <laughs> it's worldwide fugitive. Uh, these things don't happen every day in Derby Line, Vermont. It was now Peter's job to prepare for a hearing and to deliver Juan to a courtroom the following morning. The morning of his court appearance, uh, we put him back in handcuffs, we placed him in the back of the vehicle, and I drove him to the U.S. Attorney's office uh, in Burlington. We made very little chit-chat along the way. It's a long drive, it's about a two-hour drive, and most prisoners will have something to say, um, especially if I initiate the conversation, they'll have something to say to me, but he really didn't. I was a little uncomfortable knowing what this guy was capable of from his history. Maybe it was his silence that made me uncomfortable because I knew that he was scheming. I knew that he was thinking of how he was going to get out of this. He was very good at talking his way into trouble and I know that he's very good at talking his way out of it. Um, so I took no chances. I can't help wonder what Juan was thinking about that day. He faced 20 years in prison for crossing that border, and there'd be charges for the robberies in Las Vegas to face too. His days of travelling were likely over for a long time, and all because he'd said too much. What boggles my mind is that why, what was going on in his head that he thought he had to lie to a convenience store clerk to, to succeed 
at getting a phone book and run the risk of being overheard by someone who could take action officially and have him arrested. And that's exactly what happened. Thousands of miles to the west, Las Vegas detective Kirk Sullivan received the call he'd been waiting five years for. Juan Carlos the fugitive, who had got under his skin, was under arrest. And Kirk's case could finally be closed. So I got that notification that, hey, you're not going to believe this. He got arrested on your arrest warrant. He was coming into the USA, into Vermont, out of Canada. Kind of, you know, there's a checkbox in life, in anything. There's, you know, you create checkboxes of, you got to do this, 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 and this. And you want to just get them all checked. And that was the final checkbox on that case. Even though it came late in the game, still that checkbox got to be checked. And that was satisfying. In court, Juan Carlos decided to do something he hadn't done before, something he'd refused to do when Met Detective Christian Plowman asked him in London. For the first time on record, he offered up an explanation for his crimes. I've got a newspaper report from that trial, and it includes part of Juan's statement to the judge. He says, I had tried for the past, for the past 17 years to forget all of it by telling false stories and making a different world from my own so I don't have to remember the nightmare that was and has been my life. Addressing the judge, he said that his actions were the result of growing up as a gay teenager in Colombia, a place he said was without opportunity. He had been unloved and unwanted, and his crimes were just his way of coping. When the judge asked his age, an apparently despondent Guzman Betancourt turned to his attorney and shrugged, I think about 30. Maybe Juan Carlos was hoping that his emotional revelations would lead to a more lenient sentence. And we can't know how much it affected the judge's decision. But Juan received just three years, much less than the 20 he could have faced. Kirk Sullivan, no doubt disappointed at the sentence, doubted that Juan's story had any merit. He attributes his behavior to a rough upbringing. Well, we've all had rough upbringings. But he attributes it to that. He attributes it to being gay and being uh, treated poorly because of being gay. He attributes it to growing up on the streets. You know, and lot, I, know I know personally lots of kids that have grown up on, on the streets that don't turn to a life of crime. I don't know what to think. Hyun's not afraid to make up stories, but if his account is correct, perhaps that could explain at least some of his behaviour. What was his life really like? Did his childhood in Colombia really set him on this path? I didn't fancy a speculative trip to knock on doors in Colombia like I had in Miami. But after a lot of phone calls, I tracked down an old friend, Carlos, who grew up with Juan on the streets of Rondanilo in Colombia. Carlos only speaks Spanish, and, well, I don't. So I brought in a translator to help. Okay, yeah, he's got it. Um, and he's saying that he's got great intentions to, to recall these memories of Juan Carlos. And Carlos soon launched into telling me what life was like as a young teenager growing up in Rondanilo. We kind of 
uh, shared the same circle, we shared the same mates, right? We're like little punks on bikes, and uh, Juan Carlos would kind of be there. Me and all my mates, we would dive from like the highest part of the river, and Juan Carlos would never be doing that, like he'd never be involved in that part. He was an introvert, um, you know, and he was never someone that would stand out. Um, just by coincidence, he bumped into a teacher of Juan Carlos um, who taught him at school. She said that Juan Carlos was the most shy boy, who never stood out in any way, who did nothing extraordinary. He was almost apathetic, just kind of a normal, mediocre student. He was never president of anything. He just never stood out in any way. Rondonillo is a small town to the west of Colombia, situated between Bogota, Medellin and Cali. It's rural, quiet, picturesque. And Carlos told me it was a place with little money. Like most people in Rondanillo, they were, they were poor. The, the phrase in Spanish is uh, humble. If you're humble, it means you're basically working class. Um, you, you don't aspire to great things. You have a job, you bring home the pay. Juan lived at various times with his grandmother and other times with his mother and stepfather. There were brothers and half-brothers. Depending on who you talked to, there was over a dozen of them. And Juan has claimed at times he wasn't welcome in his house. Sometimes my stepfather would just get angry with us and kick us out. We had to sleep outside and sometimes with the dogs. It got worse and worse. And one day my older brother, tired of that situation and his fights, escaped from the house. When I left home, I lived on the street and ate garbage and all that. That is the part that I want to forget. Juan was determined not to settle for a life of poverty. But the only obvious way out was to join a drugs cartel, as Carlos explained. It was a very violent time during the mid-80s, the mid-90s, growing up with hard stuff around us. Um, there were lots of bad influences, which affected me personally. And so the rich people that you saw, you wondered if they made that money in, in maybe a bad way. Juan Carlos could have made money if he'd have wanted to be a criminal by doing favours for these people. Yeah. So opportunity was hard to come by unless you were willing to break the law. And while Juan's moral compass stopped short of being law-abiding, I've never heard stories of him being violent. So perhaps that was just the step too far. But Juan had told the judge in America that rather than drug cartels or poverty, it was his sexuality and lack of acceptance which he'd been so keen to escape. That was the thing which had taken him to Miami and gone on to shape his criminal life. Basically, Daryl, this town, Rolanillo, uh, is it's a conservative place, right? Um, he didn't know um, that Juan Carlos was gay. That wasn't a known thing. But um, he said that he imagined that, you know, look, that's going to be difficult to share with anyone in a conservative town, much less in the mid-80s, the mid-90s, especially because Juan Carlos was already uh, an introverted. The words he used were tremendously hard um, because, you know, in that town, being a conservative town, you would not be accepted, right? Uh, there was another guy that they knew, that they all knew, um, who's probably now 70, um, and he would wear, like, very colourful clothes and people kind of think was gay. You know, he was bothered. The, the phrase he used was he was uh, laughed at and bothered all his life. I came away from speaking to Carlos with a better idea of the challenges Juan faced. 
but there was no suggestion that he'd been ostracised or excluded because of his sexuality. Carlos hadn't even known. So had that really led to Juan risking his life to stow away in a wheel well of a plane bound for America? Or was that just another one of Juan's tall stories? I spoke to others too, and there's no doubt that these early years were tough. Perhaps it was a perfect storm of abject poverty, fear of being excluded for his sexuality, and perhaps catching a glimpse of how the criminal world could offer a way out. And all of that combined to create the Juan Carlos I'm getting to know. But it was the idea of Juan being shy which stuck with me. It's something that Jairo told me in Miami, something Christian says that he saw in London. And it was how Carlos remembered him back when they were kids. Shy. So how had someone who was so shy and so introverted managed to get the confidence to be an international con man? Maybe the only person who could answer that was Juan himself. And before I finished talking to Carlos, I asked him if he could help me in my search for Juan. Where could he be? You don't have to know where he is, do you? And he said, I think he's in Mexico. Uh, I think he's in Mexico with his partner. Um, and I said, how do you know that? And he said, well, look, I, I looked him up on Facebook. It hadn't even occurred to me that one of the world's most elusive thieves would be on Facebook. I know that most of the world has adopted social media, but wasn't that a surefire way to get yourself caught and found? Intrigued, I took a look at the profile which Carlos claimed would prove that Juan was in Mexico. And sure enough, there's a Facebook page belonging to Juan Carlos Guzman Betancourt. His profile picture is small, not hugely clear, but it resembles the pictures I've seen of Juan Carlos. You can see the mole in between his eyes. He's wearing a yellow t-shirt. He has about 80 friends. Some of those appear to be family. And he lists his location as Sinaloa in Mexico. But that page was last updated back in 2014. It didn't seem that Juan Carlos was still using it. But still, it said he was in Mexico. You can guess what I did next. Lost myself in a wormhole of Facebook, looking for any clues that might help me figure out exactly where he is. And, little by little, I discovered something. This wasn't the only account belonging to Juan Carlos. One of his friends was connected to another Juan Carlos Guzman Betancourt, with a similar but different profile picture. And from that account, I found another, and another. Then, I found an account in the name of Prince Galadriel, with Juan's picture. And then another one with a totally different name, again with Juan's image. It turns out that Juan didn't have just one social media account. By the time the night was over, I'd found nearly a dozen. In the morning, I sent Christian what I'd found, and I made him aware of one account in particular, which I thought was extraordinary. I can see a Facebook page, Juan Carlos Guzman Betancourt, with the traditional South American spelling ending in C-U-R. Uh, bizarrely, with a profile picture, which is him, uh, and the main image is a picture of a Ruger self-loading pistol for some reason. And then 
as we scrolled down, there's a load of pictures, a load of pictures of him posing outside Buckingham Palace. <laughs> now remember, Juan Carlos is still a wanted criminal in the UK. He's never been caught since escaping from the prison on the Isle of Sheppey. And yet, here he was, posing outside some of London's most iconic landmarks. I was going on a little open-top bus tour, pictures of him posing next to HMS Belfast. My God. Yeah, that's definitely Juan Carlos, looking very, uh, looking very slick in his Louis Vuitton shirt. Uh, what I think is the Globe Theatre. Yeah, on the South Bank, the London Dungeon, Big Ben, Westminster Station, the London Eye, all the big, all the big hits, all the big ones in London. I'm not exaggerating when I say there's hundreds of pictures of Juan's trip to London. One that, according to the dates he's put on the pictures, happened in 2018. And incredibly, that wasn't all. Oh my God, he's got pic- It looks like he's got pictures of stuff going down at Disneyland. He's posing with Minnie Mouse. How dare he pose with Minnie Mouse? Oh, my God. Bizarre beyond belief. Um, (laughs) A picture of his passport. He's got a Mexican passport. Okay, that's not his passport, is it? Or he's obtained that. I certainly wasn't aware that he was wandering around the world with with complete impunity on a Mexican passport and essentially using his actual name. This guy literally has no qualms. He's got no scruples. You know, it's very obvious that regardless of the fact that he's wanted in the UK and is more than likely wanted elsewhere, really doesn't care. He's all about the lifestyle. The pictures show Juan posing slightly awkwardly in designer clothing, a big Rolex watch on his wrist. In one of the images, there's even a policeman in the back of shot, clearly unaware that this isn't just your typical tourist. And the pictures allowed Christian and I to plot Juan's movements from around 2012 up until 2018. Morocco, Thailand, Bali, Dubai, Switzerland, London. I like the fact that he's got a picture of a key card for the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Moscow. I, I, I wonder if that's his key card <laughs> or one that he's obtained uh, illegitimately. And Christian spotted some friends on this one account that he appeared to be in photographs with, travelling the world with, and we came up with a plan. It would be well worth delving into some of his purported friends. I mean, there are images of him in some of the photos with other individuals. It'd be interesting to see um, to see who they might be or who they are. So there's a dude with him in some of these photographs. Um, let me see if I can find some more. Hold on. So it looks like he's in, in particular. There's the first the first images I've come across, and I might be wrong, uh, a series of photos that he's taken allegedly in Morocco. He's with he's with another guy in Morocco. Oh my God. Well, they may even still be in contact or be together or... Oh my God. Wow, this is intriguing. But the, the, the amount of... The amount of possibilities now, having identified these social media accounts is is almost endless, to be honest with you. Endless or not, it was worth a try. So together, we drafted messages and sent them to the accounts we could find. We kept the detail brief, 
We'd like to talk about someone you once knew called Juan Carlos. A couple of people came back quickly, just saying, no thanks. A couple more didn't read the messages, and they still haven't. But one, the man seen in the pictures alongside Juan in Morocco, well, he replied. And he said he would be happy to tell us his story. And that's next time. Con Juan is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Daryl Brown. The words of Juan Carlos are played by Vidal Sancho. Music is supplied by KPM Production Music and Universal. The executive producer is Sophie Ellis. And our consultant, the man who kicked off this journey, is former detective Christian Plowman. What's the Story Sounds is the home of great storytelling. If you want to listen to more What's the Story content, you can visit our website at whatsthestorysounds.com. And you can subscribe to What's the Story Plus, where you'll find ad-free content, bonus episodes, and you'll get exclusive access to episodes and series before anyone else. You can find all the details on Apple Podcasts.